From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. Welcome to Needle Exchange, conversations on the art of thread. John Thomas Paradiso is a Washington-based artist who has been exploring the intimacy of gay culture through needlework for over 30 years. Using hand-embroidered quilting techniques, working on surfaces including leather and suede, and using traditional materials like doilies to mask the graphic parts of his subjects, John's work treads the line between pornography and personal portraiture. His art is unapologetic in its openness and his expressions of the passion of gay love are both sensitive and sensational. In our needle exchange we talk about how John's artistic career has run alongside the timeline of the HIV pandemic, the value in reappropriating homophobic slurs and how his art has defined his own queer identity. As always, you can dive deeper into John's work on our YouTube channel, although his most graphic work can be found on his website. Needle Exchange is on a mission to bring textile art into mainstream culture, so if you are a fan of needlework, please share this podcast with people you know so that we can grow and shine lights onto other brilliant artists. Enjoy the show. Congratulations on being a winner. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I was surprised. I'm sure you got a lot of entries. We got, I mean, we got over 150 entries, which I was pleasantly surprised at. Because when I first launched the competition, I was like, what if we get like three people from Scunthorpe or something like that, you know? So to get people like yourselves, to get people who have exhibited internationally was a real honor for me. And then it just, it was just great because it was like, there's such a, a variety of, 
like the way we did the categories, you know, just going hand yeah. embroidery for one means that cross stitch is fighting off against like really fancy hand embroidery. You know, it was nice to just put it out there and then see how how it ended up. And yeah, you're like one of the winners. It was amazing. No, I know. And I, I've been seeing you dropping the other winners and it's really exciting work. Yeah. Some I was I've... already following and some I haven't, so yeah, exactly the same. This is what amazed me is, you know, to just discover. I think I never tire of the fact that new people come out of the woodwork. Like there were two entries in the competition that were cross stitches. And I don't, I'm not saying I should know every single cross stitcher out there, you know. <laughs> yeah. But when you meet somebody who's done something really innovative, like there's a, there's a girl called Katie Itter and her stuff's really glitchy and really interesting. And it was just like, I was just like, oh, I love that. You know, just someone who comes in with a left field approach to something that you think, and this is what I always get excited by is it never gets tiring. You know, whatever medium you're working in, someone's always coming around the corner with a new idea. It just makes it really easy, really. Um, let's talk about your award-winning piece. Can you talk me through it? So I was in this uh, major quilt show at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston last year. And it was a beautiful show. I went to see it. And my quilt was actually a collage quilt. So it was in the modern section and it wasn't actually a quilt. I mean, it looked like a quilt. Um, I called it a quilt, but it was paper and wood and, and an exciting piece. But I just saw all these beautiful quilts that people made and, and these whole cloth quilts. And I decided that I was going to try to make one. And, and I've made a couple fabric quilts before too, but, uh, I didn't do a whole cloth quilt, which is a whole other uh, uh, beast in, in a lot of ways uh, that I wasn't prepared for. But um, so I came home and, and this figure is uh, this young man named Mitch. He was my uh, nephew's boyfriend. So he sent me some pictures that I could use if I wanted to in my work. And in a lot of my stitch work, I use uh, just figures from erotica and so it was nice to be working with somebody who I actually knew the person and, and had a relationship with. So I uh, came home. It took me a little over a year to finish it. Uh, it's all hand-stitched. And it's in the style in which I do my smaller stitch work. Um, you know, I do just contour drawings of the figure. I love contour, you know, you learn contour drawings in art school and drawing 101. And there's something about that sort of naive line and stuff that I really like. And, uh, and then I stitch out the background. So the figure pops and it's, it's really just one kind of stitch. It's a straight stitch. The whole piece is straight stitches. It's just a lot of them. And mm -hmm. This is what I ended up with. And 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 originally I was going to coffee dye it. Um, but once I got like 10 months into it <laughs> and realized coffee has acid in it and this these are bed sheets, so they're cotton bed sheets. They're not even, you know, uh like fabric that I bought to go and I was using these sheets that I had. Um I just decided I couldn't do it. So I added and you can barely see it, uh, but in in person you can there's just some pink stitching in the pansies and the center is a little pink triangle in each of the pansies so and he's the prince of pansies 
And, uh, and I've been making these quilts and trying to make headboards that match them. And so a lot of the work hangs with a headboard. And I did make a headboard for this and I can tilt my camera up, but I'm not 100% sure of it. I think I'm going to carve another crown into a headboard instead of, so I carved a crown out of a headboard. So there's a okay, headboard. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you'll see that on my Instagram page, mm. but I wasn't, I, I'm not wholly happy with the deconstructed headboard. I think it might be better to have, you know, so I'm still working on that. So that's why I didn't get, you know, I, I, I just got into a quilt show in upstate New York with the quilt as well. I just found out this week uh, without the headboard because I haven't really resolved it, but I'm trying to make this series called Bedtime Stories. And so they're quilts, whether collage quilts or uh, fabric quilts with a headboard above it. And you can see some of that on my Instagram page, the headboard. Yeah, that's that it, isn't it? Because you had your, is it the, con, uh, was it the men working one, the one of your early pieces? And you do, you've got this deconstructed bed around it, which I guess just puts it in another story kind of. Yeah. It, you know, I, I was a photographer uh, through undergrad and graduate school. And then after I left school, I made photographs. And they started becoming more and more three-dimensional. Like I was doing, getting these old clocks and putting the photographs as the face of the clock. And it was about time and running out of time. It was all during the 80s and early 90s. Um, uh, I lived in New York and, and I did a lot of work with people with AIDS and my boss was a person with AIDS. And so I, I started time and running out of time and all that was a big issue. And then I started carving headboards and using headboards as the the thing that I put my photographs on. And in a lot of my photographs, uh, self-portraiture was in the bedroom with men. You know, I was chronicling uh, sex and just talking about sexual acts and risk and love. And my friend had made me a quilt uh, if I quit smoking. He said, if you quit smoking, I'll make you a quilt. And at the end of the summer, I didn't smoke. And he gave me this quilt. And it ended up in all of my um, photographs. And so it's this prominent quilt. And I started thinking about the bedroom where that's, you know, intimacy and sexuality really meet uh, in mm. the bedroom significantly. And so I started looking around instead of just doing the headboards, I started thinking about quilts. And I saw some quilts in, in these uh, church basements, uh, uh, going to some recovery meetings. And, uh, and I, I just was really interested in it. And then G's Bend was really big. And that was so interesting. And then, you know, I, I now live in DC, but before living in DC, the only reason why I would come here is to like march on Washington or, and I'd seen the AIDS Memorial quilt when it was laid out. And that is like one of the most impactful public art pieces I've ever seen and uh, really touches me personally. So all of that was sort of a culmination to start stitching and trying mm -hmm. to make quilts. And I thought, you know, my men working quilt, I wanted to make quilts about surviving and living through the 80s and 90s, as opposed to the AIDS Memorial quilt, which I really love, but uh, not everyone did die and um and i i thought that i would call them survivor quilts but i googled it and um women with breast cancer have been making survivor okay. quilts for a really long time <laughs> Mixed and uh, so i was like yeah you know like i'm never thinking that anything up first so that's why i made it men working and and for that beginning of those quilts i was using materials from construction sites 
as as well as fabric. So it was the idea of construction, men working, and then men working to sort of stay alive and still be sexually active. Because the the trajectory of your work, the timing of you doing your photography and then being in New York at that time as well, it's like, this might sound weird, but like you and AIDS sort of happened around the same sort of time, kind of, you know, you're... I, I came, it, it totally, I came out uh, late, like 22 in 1984, and maybe a month and a half later, I was working a hotline for the AIDS Council up in my hometown. And from that moment on, uh, volunteered or actually was paid to work in HIV prevention and caregiving. So uh, the only thing I didn't do, although I did do one uh, protest, uh, one action was I wasn't a member of ACT UP. A lot of my friends were. I'm too afraid to get arrested. I don't ever <laughs> want to be in jail. Um, I'm paranoid and, and, and claustrophobic. So uh, but I did do the Hoffman LaRoche action. Uh, I needed to do one because I was so impressed with uh, ACT UP and, mm. and their energy for survival. So, And you so, were yeah, professionally it, involved as an AIDS counselor for quite a few years, right? Yeah, about 20. I ran a lot of groups for gay men, and I, I sat in bars and tested men and given them the results two weeks later for years. Um, it was a really great job. And, and really great work. Uh, just, you know, once, you know, the sort of 2000s hit and the protease inhibitor was really working well and stuff, my life sort of shifted and I got to work in the art world. I did become an artist in resident at some area hospitals here working with a cancer organization um, where I would go in and make art with people who were primarily people with who were working, uh, had cancer but I would work with any patients that the nurses pointed me to uh, and their families. So I did that for about three years here. And uh, now I just make art. There was a bit that, And I um, run a gallery too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a bit I pulled out of your statement where you said, before the year 2000, my work was about life and death. Uh, since then, it has been about life in general. And I guess, was that that tipping point then? Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, in... When I moved to New York City in 1991, uh, late 91, I had a job waiting for me. I was the personal assistant for Robert Farber, who was a painter, and I was his personal assistant and studio assistant for the last three and a half years of his life. And I also um, was madly in love and moved in with my boyfriend who lived in New York, and he was also a person with AIDS. And I was doing all this work with people with AIDS. so. Um, although I do not have HIV, I um, I was involved in my community and, and the HIV community and, you know, a lot of friends and, and family, you know, were, were people living with AIDS and was part of my life. Now, I'm obviously an Englishman who's, I'll be fairly ignorant. So what's What's the status with AIDS these days? Do people still get AIDS? Obviously, people are living a long time with it now. Where is it at? Well, it's well. So people get HIV, and okay. AIDS is you know so, uh, and people can still get HIV. But there's really you know remarkable protease inhibitors for people who are living with HIV, 
and there's also PrEP and different um, things to for people who aren't HIV positive to stay HIV negative. Mm -hmm. So you combine those two things where people with HIV are undetectable because of drugs and people are taking PrEP to, to block the virus. And it's a relatively uh, modern world in, in drug therapy around that. I'm not, uh, you know, a scientist or overly no, no, well versed no. in it. It's just from what I know. I have two both- young gay nephews, so they're really like that. You know, that's how I hear about a lot of things too. It's fascinating because I think it's one of those things that it was it was quite rightly such a big deal. Then it sort of falls off of the radar, but you know, I guess it is still it's still part of the culture, right? Yeah, it's not. It, yeah, it's not on the radar like it was then. But it's still highly important, and a lot of important people are involved in in that community and making sure men and women stay healthy. Mm-hmm. So you started, yeah, you studied photography, and as you said, then the work became a bit more three dimensional, and somewhere down the line, textiles kicked in as part of that. Can you sort of explain that evolution? Yeah. So you know. It really was about the AIDS Memorial quilt and its effect on me, the G's Bend women talking about life and stitching in their documentary, um, church basements having quilts that depict downtown Washington, D.C. and all the streets. And the, you know, my coming off all of these sculptural headboards and wanting to, yeah, you know, I also like built a bed in the woods and covered it in sod to try to make it grow. And it was never really successful, but it took me like a year and a half to <laughs> finally get unsuccessful with it. But, um, you know, so the bed and the bedroom was in all of my photography, uh, was, you know, it was a big issue. And so when I started to think, when I moved to DC, I really started to reflect on the March on Washington, the AIDS Memorial Quilt, the 80s and the 90s, which were very significant. And, you know, it takes a long time to process that stuff. Uh, And, you know, it was a really heightened time in my life. And, and, you know, I I was, you know, I was getting older, so I didn't really want to be taking pictures of myself having sex with my husband anymore. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) that's probably better for the younger men. And, uh, um, but it was also evolving. And and then I just started to, I thought, you know, about making quilts out of stuff from construction sites and images of men that were online, you know, sort of this modern post protease inhibitor world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for someone like me who wasn't, you know, just coming out, I've been out for a long time and, and it uh because their horizon was changing i wanted to start making these quilts and then you know you know quilts have designs on them for the quilting i was just following the i did like a log cabin style with this stuff and so i was just following you know stitching the ditch and um but the i thought well maybe i could stitch a figure and have figures all over my quilts uh so i i stitched this figure and it was a contour drawing and then i stitched out the background and sort of that style just became something that I was interested in and didn't think it would work on the quilts, but thought maybe it could be work on its own. 
I started stitching inside the uh, hoop and keeping mm -hmm. it in the hoop. Uh, just it just worked out that way. But even the all the work that's in the hoops are actually quilts. I mean, there's a, a back fabric uh, batting and the top fabric. So I'm always stitching through three layers. Anyways, I just leave it in the hoop, and it's so taut that it doesn't show a lot of volume all the time. But um, so that's just sort of became something I was making, but they take a really long time and my hands hurt. So mm. I was also collaging with fabric and stuff. So I could just always be working, but using my hands differently, um, which is helpful. And I also, you know, if it takes me a year to stitch a piece, I want to make more than one piece a year. So I wanted to also do work that was a little bit faster, but my collage work really ends up not being faster because I have to prep the fabric and cut the, you know, it's just like art just takes a really long time and I just have to stay healthy and live long enough um, to make it. So it just evolved to also making quilts. I don't really think of myself as a quilter, um, but I've made some quilts and I'm making some more. So we'll see where it goes. And I, I noticed as well that not only, cause your hand, stitching this stuff aren't you so you're giving yourself mm -hmm. plenty workout but then just for fun you'll do things on leather and suede just to really punish your hands that bit further well you know leather fetish is such a mm. community and you know i'm i'm you know i'm a, i'm not a leather man but i'm very attracted to that kind of masculinity and and sort of the aura around that whole community um Oh, the whole leather community, not just gay men, but but gay men in particular. So, you know, stitching pansies on leather is fun and funny to me. And, you know, my friend would tell a story about, like, being at the Eagle and overhearing two leather guys talk about a sale at Barney's. And, like, that sort of, like, <laughs> makes me laugh. And, and it's such a real thing. And so to put, like, some pansies on leather, I'm thinking of those guys, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, that's sort of where things... And it's where they start in my head, but they end up so totally different. So Yeah. And the pansies are very much a recurring motif, aren't they? They appear in all different kinds of formats throughout your work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's they're very hardy flowers, so they have some high disease resistance and, you know, they live with a little snow on them. So it's funny that gay men are called pansies because mm. they're, they're really strong flowers. They're also really pretty. And they, they're really great because they stand in for all gay slurs, you know, mm. like there's, it, it, it's a slur, but it's an easy one. Also, I can hang pansy work in my mom's house. So <laughs> I wanted to be able to give my mother stuff. So, it, it, you know, it's a win-win all the way around. Um, Would it be safe to say that there's some work that you might not hang in your mother's house? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my mother has come to some shows in the early 90s that were all photographs of me having sex and <laughs> you know she is a trooper i really love her for it were there any do you, like what were the post-show conversations like on those ones you know my family's really good at not talking about the uh, elephant in the room so <laughs> With the using the term pansy, you know, taking terms that are used as slurs and then very much 
presenting them to people's face. Do you find that to be like an effective tool? Because I guess part of it is it's like just reowning those words, isn't it? It's reframing them and going, like you say, it's a strong flower. And when you look at it, it's a thing of beauty. Do you find it an effective tool to like challenge people's paradigms? You know, it's, I, I think of it less as challenging and more as, you know, it's all stuff to come out for me. Like my work comes out, you know, like you see my work and you're like, oh, that's a gay guy. You know, gay guy made this. <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, whether, you know, and this is pretty t mild. I mean, I wanted to make sure that it was stuff I could enter into quilt shows and stuff. Mm. So I've done some work where it's like uh, an erection is in it, you know, but I do that like every 10 pieces because no one's going to hang it in their house, you know, and, and I can hang it in my house. It's all over mm -hmm. the place, but you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a thing. And, you know, so I try to think of that and broaden my audience, but not water down my, um, the integrity of my work and the pansy, you know, it just, it sort of fills the gap, like calling him the Prince of pansies is, you know, he's, he's, it's a sexual piece. I mean, he is being cheeky, uh, pun intended, I guess. And he's, <laughs> you know, it, it, and there's pansies all around him, you mm. know, like you can't get away from that. He's a gay guy. And it, my work is about that. And it's not, you know, I like I tried it. This a lot of my collages could be gay, bi, trans men. You know, there's no genitalia in them. There's like doilies over them. They're layered. Even the work, these pansy pieces, they're uh, that's chiffon fabric that I mm. mounted over images and then sprayed. And so it 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 just it just fortifies sort of I slur before you slur. So it takes the power away from anybody really, you know, criticizing me for being gay. And that's, yeah. you know, I have internal homophobia that's sort of lifelong. You know, we have open, so I live in an arts district and we have open studio. And, you know, people will walk into my studio and sometimes bolt out. Sometimes they're giggling, you know, like there's all, and, and I get serious conversations too. Um, but then sometimes people, you know, aren't into it at all. They think they're too sexual or whatever. Um, it just, it's the way it is, you know, in those moments, I wish I was a watercolorist painting flowers, but I'm not, <laughs> you know. But I had that with um, uh, Leah Emery, who's a cross-stitch artist, and she would do a lot of like 1970s retro porn in cross-stitch. And by pixelating it, it's the sort of thing where when you sort of lean back and you, you squint at it, you get a sense of what the image is. A lot of your work, particularly the stuff with doilies, those doilies are very well placed. So in some ways, you're not showing anything rude, are you? You're just treading that line very carefully. Yeah, and, and well, and there's there's some newer ones that are called bedroom windows, which have like lace curtains over them. And those, the men are having sex. But I put the viewer in the position of they're looking in the window. So they're the voyeur. And if they don't want to look in the window, then you just walk away. And mm. everything is placed really well like the density of that curtain you know because there's floral and then you can see through the curtain is strategically placed like over the mouth and genitalia you know so it's it a lot is left to the imagination um but you don't have to have a really great imagination to know what's going on um, <laughs> yeah. but that work is if you know i made that work for an erotic show so i mm. wanted it to be more erotic um i and i do carefully place the doilies and stuff because 
if I'm going to put layers on, I want them to work in my favor. And this way, somebody can enjoy it. You know, the stitched pieces, even the ones that are more sexual or, or explicit uh, show genitalia, they're fabric. They're line drawings on fabric. So the way one might walk up to a photograph of the same man is a totally different experience. Even though a photograph's not real, you think it's real. You know, like it, it's real enough. And when it's stitched, it really takes the layers off. And I had a friend of mine who said that what she appreciated was she wasn't embarrassed to stand in front and look at my work because mm. it, it was soft and fabric and it, it, it allowed more uh, closeness to the imagery than if it was a photograph. But that's like a known thing, isn't it? The, the familiarity that we have with textiles, the inherent nostalgia that puts it in a safe place in the first place gives you the realms to explore content and i guess you're that's the perfect example what you're saying there yeah and also traditionally men don't stitch although men have always stitched you know mm -hmm. like just like traditionally women don't build houses you know my first girlfriend builds boats i mean i wish i could build a boat like <laughs> this woman builds boats you know so like stereotypes come fr from someplace but that's where it is you know like to stitch and sew and collage you know it leans towards the feminine not the masculine for some reason in uh maybe in a straighter world for me it's really about a fluid masculinity where i can use power tools and a sewing machine and I'm scared mm. of all of them. Like, ah, you know, like I, I'm worried I'll hit my hands with a hammer or drill as well as running things through my machine. So um, do you think the um, the use of textiles, though, permits you to explore sexual acts that are more graphic, you know, and that side of gay culture, because it, it's already giving that bit of diffusion for people? Well, I've always shown graphically explicit work because I thought it was important to talk about sex in mm -hmm. the 80s and 90s between men, especially, you know, my partner when he, uh, I had a partner who was HIV positive. I wasn't, I thought that was an important conversation to have. And so I used it in my work. Um, but I, I think it's just a lovely way, textiles, to mm -hmm. talk about it, you know, because, you know, it, you know, the bedroom I so all the headboards I use are found on the street. And so inherently someone's intimacy is in that headboard, whether they just slept next to it or did anything beyond that, right? There was use and it was in a room that is really intimate. The bedroom's an intimate place. I mean, I think naps can be intimate, you know, and, and mm. so to you know, to be making quilts, although none of them are ever going to go on a bed, it they're inspired by the bedroom and beds. And so I find that there's something just soft and comfortable about working with textiles that I really like. And that they're sort of unpredictable, too. Like, fabric really does have a life of its own. So, um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not well-versed. You know, I... I my gallery has six studios attached to it, and two of uh, the other artists are textile artists, and they have a lot of information for me. So I do get, I can talk to people, and there's videos and, and following all of your people 
uh, mm. inspire me and inform me on how to move forward. Yeah, because actually, when you think about it, the bedroom's a place where we're very honest, isn't it? Partly because we're asleep and we're very innocent, but it's it's a place where people can be themselves and be, have that intimacy. So it does become somewhat of a sacred spot, and it feels like your exploded beds are a bit like a tribute to that. Yeah, it's you know, it's a, a sort of a flattened story of a thought about something that's bedroom related, you know. Mm. Because, you know, I've never been in the bedroom with this guy, but, you know, still he's a, but he's a young sexual uh, gay man in his early 20s who's also, you know, just got his master's in social work. And so he's going to do great things and uh, a nice guy. And so, you know, and I know that, you know, he's a very sexual guy. And so to make a piece sort of in tribute of him, and the bed, you know, making it a bedtime story is about celebrating, you know, young sexuality, uh, you know, as an older guy, you know, being an uncle and being in my 60s, you know, it gets, you know, I'm looking back to thinking about myself as a younger man and, and then seeing younger men. Thanks for listening to the first part of my needle exchange with John Thomas Paradiso. He's such a great guy. It's a real pleasure to talk with him. So I hope you'll join us for part two, where we reflect back on John's life and find out what his favourite album is and much more. Thanks for joining me on another needle exchange. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange. That's N-W-E-D-L dot exchange with any thoughts, comments, or feedback. And if you want to keep up with all the news, sign up to the needle exchange mailing list at bit.ly bit.ly forward slash needle exchange. See you next time. <laughs>